Hello and thank you for tuning in to the second episode of The Muse. I am your host, Marfine Chan, and in this week's episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Theo Green, a professor of sociology at Bowdoin College and author of the upcoming book, Not in My Neighborhood, Gay Neighborhoods and the Rise of the Vicarious Citizen. I'll also answer questions from my friend Adam, and just a reminder that you can submit questions via my social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and Insta. You can find me at Marfine Chan on Facebook and Twitter and at Marfine on Instagram. But first, before we get to those topics, let's muse. New polls in Iowa and New Hampshire show Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders at the top of the crowded field for the Democratic presidential nomination. The Real Clear Politics poll average shows Pete Buttigieg is in the lead in both early caucus and primary states, with 24% in Iowa and 20% in New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, comes in second with 18.3% in Iowa and 17% in New Hampshire. But another Democratic contender has responded with an idea that is growing in popularity. Former Housing and Urban Development Secretary under Obama, Julian Castro, has called for more diverse states to be included, along with Iowa and New Hampshire, as first in the nation caucus in primary states. And I happen to agree. Iowa, which has its caucuses on February 3rd, has a population that's almost 93% white. New Hampshire holds its primary on February 11th, and has a population that is 95% white. Maine, by the way, is 95.5% white and among the oldest states in the nation. Now, having more diverse states isn't just about more diverse candidates for president actually having a shot. The problem with having some of the whitest states leading and setting the tone for the Democratic nomination systematically skews the nomination process in favor of white voters and regions that don't necessarily reflect the attitudes and the issues uh, of America as a whole. Deciding which states get to have the first say drastically affects whose voices are heard first and whose voices are amplified earlier on in the race, making systemic changes like having Nevada and South Carolina primaries uh, go earlier and coincide along with the Iowa and New Hampshire primaries and caucuses, can help make the Democratic nomination process more inclusive of black and brown voters and facilitate broader and more in-depth policy discussions. I believe this will ultimately be a boon for the Democrats and that these changes will make for better candidates who have to wrestle with more issues head-on earlier in the race. In more local news, according to the Portland Press-Herald, the Maine Department of Transportation could spend up to $237 million on a toll road connecting 295 to Route 114 out near Gorham and the surrounding suburbs. Now, despite the price tag coming in at 60% more than first proposed, the DOT still plans to go ahead with the project because toll revenue apparently would cover the building costs over time. Now, I don't know about you, but there are better things we can spend that kind of money on. For instance, there was a study done recently on bringing back the light rail connection between Portland and Westbrook. And uh, the price tag for that came in somewhere around, I believe it was $100 million. Yet people made fun of that. People sort of balked at that, saying that it was too much to spend. 
Um, but honestly, building a toll road out to the suburbs with a price tag of what could be over $200 million, honestly, I think spending $200 plus million on building a light rail loop would be better. The purpose of this project uh, was to cut down on traffic congestion, but in in my opinion, and you know, according to studies done throughout the country, building light rail helps with traffic congestion because it reduces car reliance. And the added benefit of that is that reducing car reliance also helps bring down carbon emissions and helps um, us as a community, as a state, to move towards our goal of becoming greener and more sustainable in the fight against climate change and global warming. I think the other thing, too, uh, a benefit for the Portland um, economy and region is that light rail will also help those who are pushed out of Portland because of the housing afford affordability crisis. Um, it, it'll help them to get to work easier and faster um, and supplemented with, with uh, a good bus system that runs frequently um, will just be a big boon for, for the region and for better alternative transportation. Building more highways and toll roads, in, in my opinion, doesn't help solve traffic con congestion as much as it increases reliance on cars. So I think Portland, South Portland, Westbrook, and yes, Gorham should band together and both city leaders and state legislators should ask the Department of Transportation to direct those funds, which could be somewhere near $237 million, towards greener and cleaner modes of regional transportation. And that's it for the Muse. Now we will take a break before moving on to our Q&A segment. Welcome back, and we are at the point in the podcast where I answer questions submitted via social media. Again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. My Facebook and Twitter handles are at Marfine Chan, and my Instagram handle is at Marfine. That's M-A-R-P-H-E-E-N. And this, these questions are, were submitted to me via text from my friend Adam. Uh, there's two of them, and since he's the only one, I will answer both. So the first question from Adam is, who is who are you supporting in the 2020 election? And that was a complicated question for me up until about last the last two months. I think the debates, I wanted to wait to till the, the debates to make up my mind, but uh, it became pretty clear that Elizabeth Warren is my top choice for president of the United States, Madam President, Queen of the Andals, Mother of Policy, Dragons and Plans. Anyway, I'm getting carried away. So Elizabeth Warren is my um, my top choice because, you know, she's a policy wonk and, and she's a policy heavyweight. And I love that she is nerdy. I also had the chance in when I was living in D.C., um, I was a legal intern at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And if you know um, some history around the financial crisis, Elizabeth Warren helped to create that office. 
um, that department in the, the federal government. And so the importance of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is to uh, make sure that consumers' rights are upheld and protected against uh, the abuses and, and the, the, the uh, what, what, what would you call them, the uh, shenanigans of big banks, um, specifically in the mortgage lending industry, which uh, who, who had helped to lead us to the housing crisis. But also they're getting into student loan debt forgiveness and they're um, getting into credit cards, and, and ha- they also help veterans and stuff. Um, so I, I was there for about seven months, and um, I also got to meet Elizabeth Warren when she stopped by the the office and and said hi, and we got to hear a speech from her, and she's just phenomenal. So that's who I support in the 2020 election. The second question is, what do you wish you were better at? And that is definitely a good question. Um, there's a lot of things I could be better at, but I think honestly, what I'm working on right now is um, being less intense. <laughs> I think in in my line of work, being involved in politics, being involved in activism, and being involved in human rights, uh, you know, my mentality is just always to be on the go and always to just be um, at it and, and, and super intense. And, and something that I've learned over, over time is that, you know, that same level of, of intensity and, and, and focus, you know, doesn't necessarily work out in other areas of life. <laughs> um, you know, whether it's family or whether it's a partner or, or, or dating or, um, or, or just trying to meet new people and, and make new friends and etc. And it's definitely gotten me, um, um, in, in, in some hot water. Uh, and so that's what I'm working on and trying to become better at is, you know, you know, trying not to treat everything like it's, um, supposed to be an accomplishment or, uh, I guess the word is not trying to overachieve in, 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 in a, a other areas. So that's, uh, that's personally what I'm, I'm trying to work on. Um, it's a lot of work, but, uh, I'm, I'm better for it. So yeah, that's what I'm working on and getting better at. Uh, that's it for questions. Uh, thank you for the questions. Just a reminder to submit questions via social media and via text. If you have my phone number, I'm not going to give that out to anyone, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, we'll take a break before moving on to uh, my very first interview and my very first special guest on this podcast, Dr. Theo Green. Welcome back. With me today is our special guest for our very first interview, Dr. Theo Green, from uh, Professor of Sociology at Bowdoin College and the author of the upcoming book, Not in My Neighborhood, Gay Neighborhoods and the Rise of the Vicarious Citizen. Um, Theo, welcome and, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So, so we'll jump right into it. Um, your, your faculty profile uh, I'm used to reading these websites because, you know, 
I am working on several degrees myself, <laughs> and those somehow are important to academia. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of phrases in there like sociology of sexualities, mm -hmm. um, the soci sociology of, um, I guess, communities and, and around race, gender, and class. Could you give us in, in lay people's terms sort of what you do um, and the work you do around those subjects? Oh, sure. I, I often joke about the fact that I usually give talks around the country um, for the college, and the person who often introduces me would often say, um, read that description from the website, and I, was, I always say, I need to rewrite that. I need to rewrite that desperately. Um, but one of the things that I study primarily is that I use sexuality and use gay people, queer people in cities to think about how the condition of the contemporary city um, shapes and reformulate notions of community and community attachment. Um, so most of my research is thinking about as we think of gentrification, displacing people economically from neighborhoods, that that may not be the end of the story. Um, people find interesting ways to connect to these particular spaces, whether it is um, African-Americans that might go back to churches on Sundays, uh, people going to their favorite restaurants um, in terms of gay um, communities and gay neighborhoods, people who may not be able to live there or have no desire to live there, but um, rely on bars and institutions, um, the streets to hold hands with their partners in public, that sort of thing. Um, and so the whole notion of vicarious citizenship, um, which is a big part of the book, um, thinks about how people develop ties to neighborhoods once um, they move out or they may not live in them. Um, it's It explores how people identify deeply with a space of interest, a community of interest, um, without residential ties. We think so much about um, community defined through residency, mm -hmm. but that's not how people um, necessarily think about the places that matter to them. So... So uh, I can take a guess, but what what inspired you to to get into this work? Did you stumble into it, or or you know, is it part of your uh, identity as a queer person of color? Mm -hmm. um, that's a very interesting question. I think it's a little bit. I stumbled in it, and it was something that was very conscious. So um, when I decided to go to graduate school in sociology, I was interested in. Um, exploring the experiences of LGBT people of color and um, in particular thinking about how their identity shaped political participation. Mm -hmm. um, when I got to Northwestern, which is where I did my graduate work, um, a, an incident sort of um, arose in Washington, D.C., where I did my undergraduate and I lived there for quite some time. Um, a gay bar was opening um, in an historically African-American neighborhood of Shaw. Um, and despite the fact that um, the bar owners were trying to work with these local neighborhood commissioners to get the bar open, it was opening across the street from this historic African-American church. Um, and what's interesting about how a lot of these DCs are organizing these local zones called um, advisory neighborhood commissions. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the dividing line is the middle of the street, right? That separates one from the other. And so it raised a lot of concerns. Um, the church really tried to push back to keep the bar from opening, sort of saying, um, you know, this is not the bar is not reflective of the community. Which bar people. was it? This was B bar at the okay. time. On Ninth Street. Okay. Um, and so the church, in order for the church to be able to 
mobilize successfully, they had to go to their ANC commissioners to petition the people across the street <laughs> uh, <laughs> and to and challenge the the bar from getting its liquor license. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they, you know, a number of churches sort of came together. And one of the things that's about Shaw, when I started doing my field work there, which is so interesting, um, it's such an institutional desert when I first started in 2009, mm-hmm. 2010. This was like 2006. Um, you have a church on every block, but mm-hmm. you, you know, you probably would have to search for a mailbox or a grocery store back in those days. Um, so it mobilized a lot of the local churches in the area and people, the parishioners sort of did these writing campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite all of the work that went behind it, the coverage that went behind it, um, the efforts to keep the bar from opening failed because mm-hmm. so many of the people in the neighborhood only had a symbolic tie to the community. They were people that were coming in from Maryland and Virginia to uh, participate in church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had such a strong tie to the neighborhood. Um, and that wasn't enough to keep the bar from opening. So the bar ultimately did open. Um, and then um, the problem with the bar opening was... At the time, there wasn't a whole lot of um, institutions on the street. It was like one of those, you know, those old one building. And it was like an empty Salvation Army place on the other. And it was Mm -hmm. homelessness and crime and these other kinds of things. And so um, people began to go there for a while. And then um, there were a couple of incidents that happened, one Mm -hmm. of which um, culminated in one of the patrons dying um, after being attacked. That sort of prevented people from wanting to take a chance to go to 9th Street. Um, and as a result, it did close after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and the church has since moved. But that was the inciting incident to think about these questions of gentrification in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a wonderful opportunity to think about um, something that a lot of scholars of sexuality do not focus on, which is the intersections of race and sexuality. Yeah. So I picked Washington, D.C. Um, specifically because I could not avoid studying um, queer people of color. Like, it was going to be very yeah. intentional to the research. Well, thinking about what the word intersectionality means, sort of like, if you were to stand right on that street, sort of the the planned bar and then the um, church across the street is sort of like, for you, it's in physical terms, um, in some ways, an intersection. Yeah. Um, and hopefully you didn't stand in the middle of the road but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I did not <laughs> yeah. but you know sometimes that that that's what intersectionality means is we, we're in the middle of the thick of it <laughs> absolutely and what was interesting about it was um the neighborhood always had lgbt people in it mm-hmm. um there i heard so many wonderful stories from not only gay white people moving into the neighborhood who found the neighborhood attractive um but there were also lgbt black African-Americans living in those neighborhoods mm-hmm. that grew up there and they wanted to stay there. Um, and there was always a way for which people negotiated how to work with their neighbors. But once you put in a bar, it really sort of mm-hmm. highlighted gentrification. It signaled something to the community that that what was, you know, people who were kind of visiting, right, at, you know, they were buying property there. Um, it was changing. Mm-hmm. And so that is what sort of precipitated um, the kinds of battles that we then began to see that then sort of grew um, over the years. Um, and it was always cast as the the straight African-American church, right? Mm-hmm. Homophobic African-American church and um, gay white 
gentrifiers coming in. Yeah. Um, and what I found in that early stages of the research were a lot of African-American LGBT people did stay out of that discussion. And they mm-hmm. stayed out of it for important reasons. Um, one of which was the fact that they did not feel that the club being opened on 9th Street was for them. Right. Yeah. It was not their space. It was not their community. Yeah. Um, even though the, the bar owners were trying really hard to kind of cast it as a neighborhood bar. Um, but they did not have as much support from LGBT African-American community, African-American people as they anticipated. Mm-hmm. They had their own way of thinking about community. They had their own forms of placemaking. They had their own um, activities and parties. Mm-hmm. They weren't bothered. Right? Yeah. And so I, th- that's interesting because, well, I guess I first should first reference the uh, Town Dance Boutique, yes. for instance, is a bar that's moved and tried to open up, um, I think, across from a church or near a school or something. Um, and I recently saw it on the Washington Blade where they're sort of um, going through that sort of that same process, but yeah. in a different way. They're opening in a church, actually. In a church. It, opening oh, okay. in a church. So the church, um, a lot of the churches since 2006 have sold their property, mm-hmm. right? They're making a huge boom and they're moving out into Maryland. There's some that remain. Um, in town, um, that was on the corner of you and 9th Street, and it mm-hmm. was responsible for... Um, the revitaliz- part of that revitalization of yeah. the U Street area, which is also historically African American, yeah. that along with the sports Barnelli's. Yeah, right near Howard. Too, right. right, it's yeah. pretty close to Howard. Um, and they were, that was the big club, right? It was, it was the yeah. After Nation, and a lot of the U Street, a lot of the O Street bars mm-hmm. um, near the Navy Yard closed for the baseball stadium. Town took over that place. And it was a wonderful sort of, I, you know, described it in Washington Post article as a blank canvas, right? Every yeah. person had, every person felt a part of the community because it was something different for them. And um, a few years ago, um, a developer bought the property in which mm-hmm. the bar was located in and decided to make luxury condos. So, yeah. um, you know, town sort of gentrified itself out of a mm-hmm. particular space. And it was a huge, um, you know, it created, it was a huge crisis in the community. It yeah. was the only space in the city that was 18 and over. Um, so there was not a place for young people to come to. So mm-hmm. the notion now that they are sort of um, coming back um, in the what is now understood as the Noma North Massachusetts yeah. neighborhood, um, in a in a space that was once a black church, is yeah. a very exciting possibility, and it really thinks about the persistence of queer space yeah. in DC as we see gentrification taking its hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, I was there in 2016, as I've told you before, and um, I had lived in Noma. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it was Noma. Brentwood off to the east, and I'm forgetting the name of the neighborhood between um, Noma and uh, sort of the Shaw neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's sort of like in between, in between spaces. Yeah, along I believe it was North Capitol um, Ave. But uh, but Town Dance Boutique was definitely something that I always went to. Yeah, because it, you know there was sort of a mix. There was performance space on the first floor. There was an outdoor space, and then there's a dance floor. Um, in on the second floor, um, and, and I definitely saw a diverse group of LGBT people meshing in that mm-hmm. um, that space: Latino, Latinx, um, um, and there were definitely a lot more Asians yeah. in Washington D.C. <laughs> but it's definitely like it was definitely a mix, and I and I noticed that in in 
places like DC obviously are more diverse than Maine. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's inter- inter- uh, interesting that you mentioned the word, the uh, persistence mm-hmm. of queer spaces because you mentioned before that that they had cleared the navy yard yes. for the baseball right um, um, uh, situation and so um, how do you compare that Washington like Washington D.C. the the persistence of queer spaces in a big city like that mm-hmm. with a place like Portland, Maine, which not as big of a population, people moving in, moving out. Yeah. Um, there are actually a lot of similarities. And I think about, I arrived here in the fall of 2015 and there were, I think at the time there was Blackstones and then mm-hmm. there were Sticks. Um, and I remember the first time I went into Sticks and I walked into that space and it was Friday night at 10 o'clock and there were only three people in the bar, including the bartender. And mm-hmm. I always joked about how, you know, I ordered a, a Jack and Coke and just sat on my, sat at the bar and read yeah. papers on my cell phone. Um, but you think about the dynamics of, um, that led to its closure, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, people saw an opportunity, um, in terms of where it was located and the building was sold and mm-hmm. used for a particular purpose, right? You see that kind of gentrification that, that happened with town in D.C. It happened with Cobalt on 17th and R, mm-hmm. um, where they're transforming that, that space into luxury condos as well. Um, Cobalt was another great place that we went to. <laughs> it was. I always, often joked, um, so I um, started at Georgetown in 98, mm-hmm. and my first experience um, going out quick story um used to be um it was called badlands and then it became apex um and at and badlands um took over cobalt had this wonderful retro night on Mm -hmm. tuesdays i'm in college on thursdays and um when cobalt was set on fire (laughs) and (laughs) closed for several years um badlands took that over and so when i by the time i turned 21 cobalt reopened and and it assumed that particular space so it, it had really great memories for me yeah. as well and it went through a lot of changes um you know i think of too about how um you know there was you know it was a really sort of um upscale kind of place when when i first got there and then mm-hmm. by the time it closed one of the reasons why i think it closed so quickly was that it became a space for african-american lgbt people mm-hmm. And so on Saturday nights, you would always see cop cars sitting outside, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was people always concerned about violence breaking out or some kind of something crazy happening. Yeah. Um, but to go back to your other question about, I think, some of the similarities, um, you know, when Sticks closed, right, a lot of those young people who relied on it went into Blackstones and transformed that space. And mm-hmm. I think that's what you see um, in spaces throughout D.C. as well. Um you know, I think about when those O Street bars closed, um, it pushed African-Americans, a lot of those gay black men who were frequenting those spaces mm-hmm. to come into Logan Circle, um, DuPont Circle. And yeah. it, for a while, it created some growing pains in terms of um, how people were patronizing that space. So one of the, the popular bars at the time um, was Halo. Mm-hmm. On 14th, it's now called number nine across mm-hmm. from the Whole Foods. Um, it ushered in, helped usher in gentrification along Logan Circle in that yep. street corridor. Um, and it, it's claimed the fame at the time was it was the only gay non-smoking bar. And yeah. I remember when there was an upstairs, you walked in and went up the stairs. Um, and there was a video store downstairs and they bought the space mm-hmm. out and then they sort of expanded it. Um, 
But with the black gay men coming in after those bars closed, um, people referred to it as gay apartheid because you can walk into the bar and on the first floor, it was primarily African-American men. And when you yeah. walked upstairs, yeah. it was white men. Um, and it wasn't, there wasn't anything different about the space. The music mm-hmm. was the same. The specials were the same. Um, but people really highlighted that polarization yeah. of space, um, which has, it's changing slowly. Yeah. But um, you definitely still see those pockets where um, groups are are developing their own kinds of spaces and places. And so Hip Hop Night in Cobalt was really popular. Um, As well as, I think, a lot of Latinx nights. Um, And I think specifically right after the the Pulse Pulse nightclub shootings in Orlando and how a space like town was such a valuable space for the Latinx community and the Muslim queer community um, who... I would say during that particular time um, really showed, I think, the mainstream LGBT movement what it is like to do intersectional politics. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a lot of field notes from um, Latinx Pride where they would do that kind of memorial and, mm-hmm. and town being that sort of place for them. And so um, I think placemaking has become, um, has sort of supplanted um, this idea of like having a physical space where people yeah. can go and transform a space into wherever they need it to yeah. be. And I think you see that more starkly here in Portland because of there's so few of them yeah. than you would in a place like D.C. where there's still a kind of, I mean, there's still a, a number of spaces people can go to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, which, you know, you mentioned growing pains. Mm-hmm. And Blackstone's um, definitely after six clothes and people, six clothes while I was in D.C. Yeah. So when I came back, it was such a shock because coming from D.C. to only one gay bar, essentially, um, there were some growing pains. And, and I think they've handled it pretty well mm-hmm. because they've been pretty, uh, they've communicated well using the Facebook group. Um, and they've taken on things like consent mm-hmm. um, and harassment very, very or head on. And so um, what were some of the growing pains in, in a community like Portland? Yeah. Um, I think what you had, like, you know, before Blackstones, um, and I'm still learning about the history myself. I, I've been in conversation, um, with some people who remember when it first opened and there was a piano bar, right? And people yeah. played the piano and that sort of thing. Um, I think people, when I first got here, people sort of came to it as like a local neighborhood sort of tavern. People knew your name, you go there, get drinks, mm-hmm. you play pool, um, but I think with this newer crowd coming in, right, like on Sunday nights, I always talked about how you could walk in and it's the, you know, the bar is the size of this dining room table. <laughs> and it was two completely different spaces because mm-hmm. there was karaoke playing in the afternoon. And I remember the growing pains when you have a pool tournament in one room yeah, and people singing karaoke and the noise was a distraction to the pool players. Mm-hmm. Um, and or trying... when they move the pool table for drag night. Or... Absolutely. Um, and so those are kinds, those were the kinds of growing pains you see. And I think we still experience it now as, um, you know, it has really become an LGBT bar. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a much greater diversity of people. You see um, people who have transitioned, mm-hmm. right, or in the process of transitioning. Queer women are coming. Straight people are also making their, their way yeah. into the bar. Um, you see a lot more um, public displays of affection mm-hmm. from straight people, which I think does turn a lot of the, the patrons off because, yeah. again, Blackstones is still that safe space yeah. for them to be able to do, to meet and find people in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um 
you know, I think the the windows coming down and, and, and I mean, the old windows coming down and the new ones coming up was also a certain kind of growing pain because it created a new sense of visibility. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think what we're seeing now is lots of people making it their community bar and there's a lot of questions as to how do you make this a space where everyone feels comfortable Mm -hmm. that is always a challenge Mm -hmm. um no matter what you do i think some people will win some people win some people will lose um and i think there's always that fear that sometimes when you open up a space too much um it loses that meaning right when you're trying to accommodate everybody then Mm -hmm. what is it for yeah um and so you know, to think about how even last night when I was there doing field work, yeah, um, and it was a pool tournament and the music was, you know, was banging as we say. Yeah. Um, people were like, "I wish we could get rid of the <laughs> of the pool table. Why is the pool yeah. table sitting there?" Um, so is it sort of in a way on a smaller scale a gentrification of a space? I think you could say that. Um, I also think it's a it's a it's a reactivation of different kinds mm-hmm. of spaces that people really need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is no like strong sense of people wanting to create new kinds of gay bars. I mean, yeah. it's a risky venture. Um, or dance places right, mm-hmm. where people can dance. And so you, what you're seeing, I think, is people creating and reactivating spaces that are, are meaningful and valuable to them, mm-hmm. right? Sticks is a, is a part of there. I think there's some poetic justice and the fact that Blackstones is decorated with all of the signs of the former bars that once yep. existed in Portland. It, um, I think, because... Sure it's not just shade. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> we are still here, <laughs> no, right? Yeah. No, I think there is, a, there is a certain kind of symbolic power in terms of, you know, people really miss those spaces. Yeah. And the opportunity to come and find fellowship and engage in practices that remind them of those spaces are really important. So... You know, one of the new kinds of trends you see is after a major event, Mm -hmm. there's an after party, right? Like Blackstone's becoming the official after party. We will push the the pool table back and everyone will start dancing. Um, And again, those are kinds of things that I'm sure were not imaginable Mm -hmm. um, when a place like Styx was open. But there is such a need for Mm -hmm. those kinds of spaces, right? And people will break out into dancing whenever the music is good, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even though the space is small and it gets really packed and congested and and all of the other kinds of things, right? At some point, um, you know, we will have to figure out how to accommodate, I think, the Mm -hmm. people that come through that space. It's a lot of people. Yeah, I, I know one of the, the the dreams for a while was to purchase the treasure chest space. But I think the treasure chest people are hanging on to that pretty tight. Well, and I think yeah. people people still want their sex shops, you yeah. know? I think one of the consequences of, of acceptance mm-hmm. has been um, the sort of sanitation of the elements of queer identity that people, that mm-hmm. really helped define it, which was the sexual culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to go out and have, walk down the street and find, um, you know, provocative window displays and that sort of thing, sex shops that were available, right? That sort of partly went away with the AIDS crisis, right? Bathhouses mm-hmm. lost their luster. Um, but at the same time, um, with straight people coming in, right? You can't have... Um, a display of the asses of the year calendar, right? <laughs> um, or words that would signal yeah. a sexualized culture. Um, and so I think there's still people that do hold on and rely on spaces like the treasure chest, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, mm-hmm. Especially the, the, the various closeted straight men that come and drive up and look both ways. You know, they pull their wedding ring off and go into their, yeah. or their own titillation. 
Um, but, you know, I definitely do think that there, you know, I mean, the Miss Blackstone's pageant is a, is a powerful example of mm-hmm. that, right? You know, they reintroduced it. Um, it became so popular that now the finale will be at Port, at Port City. Oh, um, because, it, wow. because, you know, there was standing, you know, people standing outside waiting yeah. to kind of get in and, and it was at capacity. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Blackstone's has really sort of, you know, reinvented itself in so many ways, primarily because people are are, are creating place yeah. um, within it. And there's so many different ways in which now it has an, a different identities depending on who relates to it. Yeah, yeah. You're creating a digital archive, sort of compiling um, what, you, what, what, you, what you basically covered in terms of Blackstone mm-hmm. and, and sort of the... When we were talking about the signs that okay. Blackstone acquired, um, could you go into more sort of? Does the archive have a name? Oh yeah, um, it's still in its infancy. Um, I was really interested in doing a project on queer Portland, finishing my work in DC and to a certain extent Chicago, um, and thinking about again the role of um, gay neighborhoods and queer placemaking in a space that is now identifies itself as post queer, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, Black how does post queer? You said. Well, I mean, I think you know people think of Portland as a post queer space, yeah. right? That we don't need to have these kinds of gay specific spaces. Um, I think Blackstones is sort of disproving that theory to a certain extent, mm-hmm. as well as the return of Gorilla Queer Bar, um, which is which is now becoming um, a very sort of popular yeah, event again. It is, yeah. Um, the well, what was interesting to me was thinking about, again, how people engage in these sort of ephemeral placemaking practices in um, traditionally straight spaces. So I think mm-hmm. about, like, the drag show in Empire. I think about how mm-hmm. it's traveling all over the place. Again, Port City, which will be a queer space the night of the Miss Blackstone's pageant. Um, you know, the Pride Parade that comes through mm-hmm. Portland. Um, and so, but in, as part of that, thinking about how these strategies of placemaking community... Um, I was also really struck by um, the kinds of places that once existed. I mean, Portland itself was a very, very queer place at yeah. a time when people were very hostile to LGBT identity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of wanted to... It was to one of the few cities, I think, that came up in front of the queer civil rights movement in terms of the, the non-discrimination ordinances. Yeah. Absolutely. And so one of the things I wanted to do um, was kind of keep a record of that. In D.C., there's an archival group, Rainbow History Project, that does the local history in Washington, and they have a Spaces and Places archive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to, I think, do some kind of mapping where we can look at the spaces that Mm -hmm. were once there and include some oral history from that, people who who lived here and survived and have Mm -hmm. some of their voices with it and think about, um, again, um, how these spaces have changed over time. And and to remind ourselves of the kind of value that, you know, it once had. And at one point, hopefully, once I finish with Portland, I can stretch it out to think about Maine in general. Mm -hmm. I think there's, again, people underestimate um, the the queerness of this particular place. Mm -hmm. Um, While also thinking about, again, the contemporary sort of strategies that people use to claim queerness and sense of community, mm. especially as we're seeing disgentrification taking hold. Mm-hmm. We're seeing the influx of, of younger people mm-hmm. who, you know, I think are not 
always as open or as accepting as we want to say that they are. Yeah. Um, we see people who are getting attacked, right, mm-hmm. for, for being trans-identified or mm-hmm. um, who are holding hands, right? I, I've had several instances of people driving by throwing the N-word at me, yeah. right, walking down the street. Um, and so, you know, it's an opportunity for us to, to take some of those blinders off and think about some of these questions in a really critical way, yeah. especially as I think... We will see the next few years Portland really ascending to the model of a kind of post-industrial um, city where, mm-hmm. um, you know, people will the people who help make it the quirky little town that it once was mm-hmm. will not be able to afford to live here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, that that's a big uh, debate raging on even now in yeah. in city hall and um, sort of social justice circles is sort of gentrification is hitting um you know people are obviously moving away or being priced out and and so it's, it's definitely a tough conversation um but there was another term you mentioned um or sorry a, a phenomenon i guess is sort of creating queer spaces within straight spaces mm-hmm. and the thing that i sort of sort of struggled with in those in, in that aspect is that it, it's for me I, I felt like the loss of sticks and the loss of studio 55 which was another um, bar uh, made it harder for queer people of color specifically to find you know spaces that they felt safe mm. in um, because even if you're 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 white and and queer or, or white and gay specifically cisgender male um, what I noticed both in in DC a little bit, but mostly here yeah. in a space where there's not as many queer spaces, where um, white cisgender male uh, gay males were, were creating spaces for themselves in straight bars, yeah. um, and for me that was always sort of a, a conflict because it's sort of uh, or something that I thought about because it's it's harder for queer people of color to do that, right? Um, and any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I, I have a lot of them, actually. <laughs> um, you know, I'm often reminded, I'm working on a project now. I was Before I, we met up, I was finishing a paper that looked at, um, in Chicago and Boys Town, um, which is historically white gay neighborhood, it's mm-hmm. the iconic gay neighborhood for Chicago, um, how in recent years it's attracted queer youth of color from the south and west sides of the city mm-hmm. um, who didn't feel comfortable being in, their, in those neighborhoods, right? Um, being out and open, um, enjoying, again, that kind of um, political moment that we have a visibility, right? Where we're mm-hmm. encouraging people to come out and yet there's no spaces for them. They get bullied, they get thrown out of their homes, yeah. right? Turn out on the streets. And so Boys Town is where they go to. And because they often don't have the money mm-hmm. um, to, or they're too young to enter into the bars, um, they often take over the street corners and they're transporting their practices, right? Yeah. That they that they would have in their own neighborhood into, the, into Boys Town. Mm-hmm. So... They get up in the morning and they go um, and they make each other, they make themselves up, trans women make themselves up using um, the, the display windows, right, the, the, the of, of businesses. Mm-hmm. They go to bathrooms and coffee shops with their hair and makeup on. And they become, you know, and even, you know, they double dutch in the streets, right, mm-hmm. engage in forms of play, right, right, that again mirror the kinds of code of the streets that often we align with the iconic ghetto, yeah. right? Um, and it's, 
produces a lot of stress and strain for the residents, most of whom are white, um, who see these large groups of black and brown bodies and think Mm -hmm. of it as criminal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but, you know, when I was there in 2011 and there was, you know, crime that happens in the summer, which always happens because of the fact that it is an entertainment district that's right Mm -hmm. next to Wrigley Wrigley Stadium, um, you know, these kids got blamed and they sort of said, no, 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 we have a right to be here, right? This is a gay community um, for everybody. um, And we are doing the things that make it accessible to us. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you see here is really interesting, right? I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of queer people of color that are out invisible, I think to the extent that you and I are out yeah. invisible. <laughs> and I, I mean, and I do it because I, it's research yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are ways that we still find and engage in placemaking. It doesn't look like what um, gay white men are able to do because mm-hmm. often we don't have the capital to do it. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I do think that there are ways in which we transform those spaces, right? I mean, you can walk into the bar and if hip-hop music plays, right, you know, the black gay men that are there will will do the bump and grind while yeah. all the white men are standing there, like, <laughs> just holding their <laughs> drinks. Um, yeah. and, and again, I think that's one of the interesting things about um, bars in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a piece now um, that explores how, even as we see bodies of diverse bodies in a bar, right? Mm-hmm. You might see multiple forms of placemaking happen simultaneously. Yeah. So um, I called it, the title of it is um, Your 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 Bench is My Dance Floor, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it was inspired by when I was at number nine in DC um, and all of a sudden, you know, it was happy hour and it was this mixture of, of you know, different groups of people and then all of a sudden back that ass up came on and all the black gay men started jumping up on the benches and started to twerk right <laughs> and 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 everyone was cheering each other on and at that yeah. point right then you had this whole this again one space mm-hmm. but then it was this bifurcation of, of place right where on one end you had the black guys sort of dancing and grinding and grooving whenever a new mm-hmm. song came on um, and the white gay men just standing there until like a song that everybody knew. So then yeah. Oops I Did It Again came on and everybody started dancing yeah. and, and singing along or I, I want to dance with somebody and everyone mm-hmm. come like a song that everybody knows and they like. Yeah. Um, and so I think we underestimate um, some of the really inventive ways that queer people of color mm-hmm. are engaging in placemaking even in these white queer spaces. Yeah. 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 Um, again, the, uh, the idea of uh, queer persistence that you mentioned earlier um, despite you know all the things that are stacked against against queer people uh, yeah. in general but uh, uh, so you're compiling all these into, into a book yes um, and and I did mention that I was I sort of had the training of sort of the, the urban planner mm-hmm. but in a white main context yeah um, so when you when you when your book is titled uh, "Not in My Gayborhood," right? Sort of, I think about NIMBYism. But yeah, it, is it related, or is it different? Oh, I, I totally sort of borrowed from that for the title. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it was reflective of the fact um, that multiple a neighborhood is comprised of multiple communities. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them who don't live in the neighborhood, but again, align themselves culturally to the neighborhood, right? So for gay people, it's a shared sense of identity. Mm-hmm. This is a gay space. I'm a gay person. I feel comfortable. I find a sense of community and comfort there that I mm-hmm. might not where I live, right? In D.C., you know, people pick their places more often than not because of its commute to work, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
And so, so think about not in my neighborhood. Um, it was really about how different people transform those symbolic ties into real material claims of mm-hmm. places of placemaking and, and citizenship and rights. Um, even as those spaces disappear. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the new frameworks I've added to the book, um, which is what I'm calling place reactivation, yeah. um, is thinking about like how people lament the absence of um, spaces. And they sort of say, oh, DuPont Circle's not the gay neighborhood anymore. Yeah. But then when something happens, like the Pulse shooting, mm-hmm. um, DuPont Circle then becomes that destination spot where yeah. people come and they and they mourn collectively and mm-hmm. they transform it into that queer space that once was a really popular, you know, point of conversion yeah. for LGBT community. Yeah. And it, again, it, it comes and it goes as the community needs it. Mm-hmm. And so, just like the holidays, just like the holidays, Thanksgiving, all the boys <laughs> come back home from college, right? <laughs> or you know. And so, and so, what does it mean that we don't even need these like institute brick and mortar institutions permanently? Yeah. But we, you know, when when we want to mobilize community, we can because we have the memory of this space as mm-hmm. a queer space, a black space. Um, I think about um, on U Street, um, the 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 story about the Metro PCS playing the go go music, mm-hmm. um, and the re- residents sort of residents in nearby condo sort of complaining to the CEO of Metro PCS to have it stopped, and then it produced a protest that brought not U Street Shaw residents, brought yeah. black people from all over the city, the metropolitan area, to protest. Yeah. Like you can move us out, but you're not going to take away what makes this neighborhood what yeah. it is. And that is a sense of ownership that comes from a connection to place. Yeah. And so that's where I think this whole notion of not in my neighborhood comes from, right? Yeah. Like that that, you know, we're not looking at the just at the residents. We're looking at lots of people who use that space in lots of different ways. Yeah. And through that can claim a sense of ownership over it. Yeah. So in in, in... In, in very uh, real ways, you're, you're writing a book that says, you know, uh, you know, home isn't a physical place. It's where the heart is. Yeah. So the queer heart. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, you know, people who write themselves into that story. Yeah. So queer youth of color, right, who often, you know, gay neighborhoods are adult male spaces. They're not mm-hmm. necessarily understood as, as, as kids' spaces. But as you, you see younger people um, coming out, earlier and earlier, Mm -hmm. um, they need spaces to go to, too, that are safe, that they can explore their identities. And um, so they're writing themselves into that story. Queer people of color, right, who we often, you know, one of the things I will, I want to emphasize, right, is that people often sort of um, take for granted that a lot of the kinds of policies that shaped segregation in cities also kept the gay neighborhoods as white spaces, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you know, housing markets and those kinds of things. And so we take for granted the ways in which um, queer people of color had to endure discrimination in yeah. gay neighborhoods, um, and they are rewriting those stories as well yeah. um, and writing themselves back into this history. Yeah. And so, you know, 
one of the really great surprises about the DC book um, for me has been, you know, people will say, well, DC has always been a gay city. Well, yes, it has. And it's been a gay city in so many ways yeah. because you can't deny the fact. Shaw is not a gay neighborhood because Town and Nellie's moved in. Yeah. Shaw has always been a gay neighborhood for yeah. somebody. DuPont Circle was always a gay neighborhood for somebody. Georgetown mm-hmm. and Acostia, right? Um, and, and, and that has not changed and persist. I mean, it has persisted over time. Um, and so I think we, we, we lose sight of a lot of the really inventive ways that LGBT people across, um, race, class, generation found community, Mm -hmm. right? And were visible, Mm-hmm. Right, even though it doesn't look the way that it's supposed to for white queer men, mm-hmm. right? Coming out is not the same kind of experience that all people sort of share. Yeah. Sometimes it's okay to bring your partner to the picnic or the barbecue, yeah. and and nobody talks about it, but that person is welcome to the family. It's understood. Yeah. <laughs> um, they don't have to come out and say, "I am gay," "I am this." Yeah. Um, and so, you know, hopefully, what my work is doing and what I would like for it to do is really sort of push back against, I think, a lot of the cultural forms that we think of in terms of gay identity, Mm -hmm. um, queer identity as white, Mm -hmm. um, as cis, as um, belonging to a certain class and a certain generation of people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's a, that's a pretty good, pretty good wrap to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, also a reminder that uh, you mentioned the housing segregation is part of the, the problem. Um, Thursday night, we're having Richard Rothstein coming to give a lecture on the color of law. Yeah. Um, so it'll be sort of a good tie into that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'll be there. You'll, you'll be there. Well, maybe? I'll try to be there. Yes. <laughs> um, I think the tickets are free, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, so thank you for coming. And was, this conversation could have probably gone on for another. <laughs> I guess it could have. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Me.